I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of ass. Comics Monthly Monday, number five. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. Then transfer out, freak! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Sheep flying, no good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, and now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Alright, we're back with another Two True Freaks episode. And I gotta say, maybe we might change the name to Two Unemployed Freaks. As, um, and, and I think you can tell the intelligence of each freak because um, in this time of recession bordering on depression, Scott's the one who got laid off. I brilliantly quit <laughs> my job. So, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, um a glimpse into my uh, dwindling IQ. Well, anyway, that's me, Chris Honeywell, and uh, I'm here with Scott Gardner, and we've got some time on our hands, so here you go, a, a comic book podcast. <laughs> and we're up to our <laughs> fifth month of Monthly Mondays, so that means uh, we're up to number five of uh, Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead. And uh, we're starting a new thing this month where... Um, we're going to cover the Saga of the Swamp Thing comics from the beginning. Yeah. And uh, which, you know, they, uh, we're starting with issue number one, and, and, you know, they eventually lead into the really famous uh, Alan Moore run of uh, of uh, Swamp Thing comics. So that's mm-hmm. that's coming up in, in this, this run. So that's starting this month. And, uh, and plus, we got other comic stuff to discuss, so it's going to be a doozy this month. <laughs> doozy. It's it's a doozy. It's a he- heavy flow this month. Ew. That's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you better put on your mental maxi pads because <laughs> it's a gusher this month. <laughs> oh my god. That's horrible. Horrible. We, we are bleeding nerdly knowledge like a stuck pig. <laughs> oh. Just eight, damn it. I just ate two spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> oh, you puke! Ah, oh, so where to begin? Where to begin? Um, well, I don't know about you, but I read some comics this week. Actually, I read a shitload of comics this week, but I'm just going to talk about a couple in particular that 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 jumped out at me. But first, before I get into that, I have a movie recommendation. Stop whatever the fuck you're doing. Well, don't stop listening to us. But when you're right. done listening to 
does. Just stop whatever else you're doing and run right out. And if you can find it, that's the big problem because I noticed the red box did not have this particular movie. So it was, it was kind of tough for me to track it down, but track it down. I did watched it today. Well worth your hour and like 13 minutes or whatever it was. It was, you know, just, just a little over an hour. It is the brand new DC Comics animated feature, Wonder Woman. And before you laugh... Oh, it was good, huh? It was good. It was really, really good. Now, I will warn you, this is not... This is not cartoon... It's, this is not Brave and the Bold or Super Friends. It's, it's actually even more intense, more adult, more violent, more blood than... Um, Justice League Unlimited. This this is pretty much a PG thirteen, you know, really pushing the boundaries. This is like like anime style, you know. I mean, not not in the not in the uh, animation, but in the in the blood and guts, you know, a, adult level. I mean, I watched it with my kids, but you know, they're kind of used to this sort of thing now, you know. And as long as I watch it with them, I'm you know. I mean, if it had gotten really bad or anything, I'd have turned it off. But, you know, I thought they were okay with it. They'd watched all of, like, Justice League Unlimited with me and stuff like that. But, um, the, you know, there were there was little sexual innuendo and things like that that mostly went over their heads. But, you know, there's enough in there that uh, I think this is a movie you could watch with, like, your wife or girlfriend. And they'd probably get a kick out of it because there's a lot of really nice, like... Uh, like uh, sexual tension and sexual innuendo between Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor. Wonder Woman, you're wonderful. For a change, Steve Trevor is more than just the male Lois Lane. You know, the, uh, I don't know what the male equivalent of a damsel in stress is, but he used to piss me off in the fact that he was, he was, he basically was, you know, a, a dude in distress, you know, instead of a damsel in distress. Right. This one here, he he holds his own. You know, he he's just as much a, an action hero. You know, he he's kind of almost portrayed as like Hal Jordan without the Green Lantern ring. You know, he's a he's a pilot. You know, he's a uh, ace pilot. Uh, just uh you know, just like a like a your standard action hero, and then he, he you know he just happens to have this you know girl with him that you know can throw cars around and shit. You know, and it was really cool. I really enjoyed it. There were a couple nitpicks with it that I had, but they weren't anything you know major that you know destroyed my enjoyment of it. I I, I can't really talk about them because it would give parts of the plot and and things away that you know I'd rather not give away. I'd rather not ruin it for anybody. But I will definitely recommend it. I mean, check it out. It was a hell of a lot of fun. Um, it's not too long. Lots of action. And Wonder Woman's just, she's she's great. She I forget off the top of my head who does the voice um, of her, but, you know, excellent voice acting by everybody involved. Um, what's his name? Alfred Molina. I think that's his name. The guy who played Doc Ock. In Spider-Man 2, he's the voice of uh, of Ares in this, and he's pretty cool. My only nitpick with Ares was, uh, and I've noticed they've done this, they did it with uh, Justice League Unlimited, and they may or may not be doing it in the comics right now, I'm not sure. I prefer Ares the way George Perez drew him in the beginning when he brought back Wonder Woman post-crisis, where Ares was supposedly so horribly awful to look at because he was the god of war, 
that he always wore a helmet and never took it off that that supposedly to like look on him would you know was was the most horrible thing somehow or other they got away from that and now they're back to like the pre-crisis Ares, which is you know he's actually kind of supposed to be like a you know, like a, a beautiful man, you know, to look at kind of, and I don't like that. I liked it better with the idea that he was hideous under that helmet, you know, kind of a Darth Vader type of thing. You know, it's nitpicky, but I, I just prefer it that way. I think that's cool. Um, but it was really, it was a nice blend between, you know, the, the action adventure with Steve Trevor and, you know, your standard, you know, Greek God mythology stuff that, that they typically do with, with Wonder Woman, you know, the plot with Ares and, you know, you had some demigods in there and then, you know, all the creatures and stuff at the big battle at the end. Um, but anyway, you know, in short, just uh, I recommend it. It was a lot of fun. You know, if you if you're a fan of uh, like Justice League Unlimited or, or even Justice League when it was just, you know, uh, Superman, Wonder Woman and the others, you know, before they expanded the roster. If you liked that portrayal of Wonder Woman, she's very close to that in this, but she's just ramped up that much more. She's she's a little tougher little more aggressive and uh i liked her because she's got a little bit of the princess leia thing going on she's royalty and you know so she's she's kind of haughty and uh you know has to kind of come to terms with uh you know walk that balance between you know the way she was raised and everything and then you know the way women are in quote-unquote man's world and and trying to find her place there and and also trying to overcome her preconceptions of, you know, what the outside world uh, was going to be like, you know, by the way that she was told that it was by her mother, who's been out of touch with the outside world for thousands of years. So it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of different depths to the the story and uh, check it out. Um, Just a couple quick things as far as comics. Like I said, I read a bunch of stuff this week, but these are the ones that, that really jumped out at me um, in different ways. Uh, the one of them was – I've been trying to track this down for a while. He's a couple of years old. This this came out in – let's see. The cover dates on these are November and December of 2007. This is JLA Hitman. It was a two-issue miniseries. Um, I've been trying to track it down for a while. I, I remember when it came out, kind of thumbed through the first issue, and it caught my interest because it's sort of a sequel to – um, Hitman issue number 34. Now, I don't know anything about Hitman. Um, I picked up Hitman number 34 somewhere dirt cheap, probably for like 50 cents, only because it had a Superman guest appearance in it. And this was back in the day where you know, I was collecting anything and everything that Superman appeared in. You know, I was that big of a fan of the of the post crisis. You know, what I call the burn Superman that I'd pick him up no matter where he appeared. So I I snagged this issue, and it was the only exposure I'd ever had to Hitman. Hitman was a character that came out of the whole Bloodlines little mini series saga thing from back in like '93, which pretty much sucked. And so I always kind of wrote off Hitman. My my preconceptions of him was that he was like a, a, a really lame DC version of the Punisher, which ironically was written by the same um, writer, Garth Ennis. But actually, this issue was fantastic. Um, Superman literally just lands on the roof where this guy is, this Tommy Monahan. He's the, the hitman. And Superman has just gotten back from this deep space mission and – 
um, he's really depressed and everything. He strikes up a conversation with this Tommy guy, and Tommy kind of bucks him up. You know, Superman lost. Is this just a random guy he runs into? Yeah, yeah. Just he didn't know the guy at all. He just he lands on this roof, having come back from a from a deep space mission, and this guy's just on the roof. And if I remember, I, it's been a while since I've read that particular issue, but I think Superman even apologizes or said something. Oh, I'm sorry. Is this your roof or something like that? And the guy's like dumbstruck. But once he gets over it, you know, they actually, you know, they just sit and chat for a little bit. And the guy can tell that, you know, super, something's really bugging Superman. And what happened was um, he went out to like something had gone wrong with a, like this shuttle mission and Superman went out to help them. Something went wrong and Superman lost one of the people that was on the, one of the astronauts that was on the mission and it really bothered him. And so this guy kind of gives him, you know, just kind of a pep talk, buck Superman up and they kind of shake hands part ways and uh, Superman flies off after Superman's gone. You know, this Tommy guy goes and at the end of the issue completes what he's actually on the roof for, which was an assassination. Yeah, I knew he's it. a hitman. I knew it. <laughs> and, you know, so it was like, it was like, wow, you know, it was such a cool, cause I'd never read the character before. So it was such a cool thing that here's this guy that's a hitman, you know, kind of makes friends with Superman, has a nice little conversation. He's obviously has a bit of hero worship of Superman, yet he's, you know, the lowest form of per, he's a hitman, you know, but it was just such, it was a really cool issue. It was, it was really not what I was expecting. And it always stuck out in my memory as something that, was one of the better Superman stories of the past few years that I had read. So anyway, along comes this JLA hitman, this, this two issue mini and just thumbing through it, wherever I had seen it, when it came out, I, I realized right away that there was a moment in it where Superman and Tommy, well, it's funny because uh, they, they bring Tommy up to the JLA satellite because there's once again, there's a problem with another space mission and they determine that the the aliens behind the whole bloodlines thing may be involved. So they need someone who was involved with the bloodline story. Since Tommy, his superpowers manifested because of the whole bloodlines thing, they decide to recruit him. He's he's basically out of that whole bloodlines thing. He's the only one who, who ever went on to do anything. His, his book ran for like 60 issues. All the other characters that spawned out of that pretty much sucked and disappeared very quickly, but he stuck around his, his series was fairly successful. So anyway, they, they nab him, they bring him up to the satellite and it turns out that at some point in the past, Tommy and Green Lantern had run into each other, so they knew each other, and Batman's like mortified by this and really gives Green Lantern a dressing down that he had worked with this guy because this guy, in Batman's opinion, you know, he's scum of the earth, you know, he's a hitman. Then Superman walks in the room, and Superman's like, hey, Tommy, how's it going? And Batman's just like, you know, the, the look on his face is priceless, you know, because he's, right. you know, he, you know and, and Green Lantern even says something about, you know, uh, hey, Superman, I think Batman has something to say to you. And, you know, Batman, of course, doesn't dress down Superman. It's it, the book is filled with little moments like that, because Tommy is a very irreverent character. He'll, he's, he'll say anything to anybody. You know, he's, you know, while he does have still some hero worship when it comes to Superman, he treats everybody else pretty much like regular Joes and he even smarts off to Batman at particular moments and things like that. 
I don't want to give away too much of the story because it, it's just it's a fun read and it would it would just spoil it to really lay too much of the plot out. Um, but it, it was a lot of fun for those familiar with the Hitman series. This does take place, it, or this is kind of a uh, uh, a flashback tale. Uh, that fits within the framework of that series, if you know how that series ended. So, um, but the the basic plot that that I liked in this, and the the thing that hooked me in, was at the beginning. There's a, a reporter who basically investor, investigates like conspiracy theories, and he is confronting Clark Kent to get the story behind how the hell did a did a picture of Superman that says to all my buddies at this, this, this bar, like Noonan's or something like that is the name of this bar. Uh, Superman is signed by Superman. This bar is where Tommy and all these other like underworld lowlifes hang out. And so this guy wants to know why, why in the hell would Superman, you know, sign a picture for these scumbags and therein is how the story is laid out. Of, I mean, is it basically their, their mafia? Is that the intimation yeah, that it's basically yeah, the mafia? Mafia, hitmen, yeah, that kind of thing. Well, that is so interesting. That, you wouldn't think Superman would uh, – you'd think he would uh, be a little wary of that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and so you know, then Super uh, Clark kind of lays out the story of, well, here's the time that they work together, and that this is why this isn't public knowledge. And and there, you know, it goes into the whole story about the the bloodlines, aliens, and the whole thing, and why they you know brought Tommy up to help him out, and all this kind of thing. And it it, it was a really good story. Um, like I say, I can't go into it too much without giving you know spoiling too much of it, but uh, well worth a read. I picked it up. I, I'd had to hunt around for it for a while, but I finally, when I ended up getting it, I got it off ebay shipping included for both issues three bucks so i mean you can get it for a steal well worth your time to read it It was a lot of fun okay my last one is pretty much at the other end of the spectrum it is a book that just came out just came in my latest uh dcb service uh package that arrived just the other day this was astonishing tales number one this is uh the April 2009 edition, they're, they're basically relaunching Astonishing Tales as an anthology title. Original cover price on this was $3.99, which is in violation of my own personal new uh, code of ethics when it comes to buying comics. I'm not, I'm not going along with the, uh, the price hike. However, you know, TCP service, for those that don't know or don't use it or whatever, every once in a while they run some really, you know, just – extra special discounts, uh, mostly on first issues, but, you know, just different things they want to spotlight, you know, like when a new title launches or, uh, you know, like if a book's in trouble or something, they just want to spotlight for one reason or another. And, you know, they'll run some really extraordinary discounts and what, you know, something like 75% off or whatever. That was the case with this particular book. It was only a dollar. And I figured, well, you know, it's a number one. It's a brand new title. You know, I, I liked the cover on it and all that. And some of the content sounded interesting. So I figured, oh, what the hell, for a dollar. You know, I knew darn well I wasn't going to continue buying it, you know, at that price point or what. But I figured for a buck, I'd go ahead and pick it up. Well, I, I read through it and everything. And uh, 
I gotta say that uh, I think I spent a dollar too much for it because it's pretty bad. I mean, it's got interesting characters and everything. You know, there's a Wolverine Punisher story. I like both those characters. Um, there's an Iron Man 2020. I've always liked that character. There's an Iron Man story, you know, just regular Iron Man. And then there's a Mojo World story, which I really hate Mojo. I mean, I've never liked Mojo beyond his original appearance in Longshot. I think everything else with him has just been, I don't know, It's it, it, they just don't seem to capture the original spirit of that character. But it still it had uh, uh, Bobby and Sam from um, the old New Mutants book, you know, uh, Sunspot and, uh, and Cannonball. So I expected to like that. And, you know, I didn't like any of the stories in here. The art was really, really bad on most of these stories. It was just really subpar, strange, a lot of anime and manga-esque looking stuff. And the stories just didn't really grab you. I mean, for a first issue, you know, it really, you know, especially an anthology book, because anthology books have, have had such an awful time trying to survive lately. You know, I mean... They come and go all the time. You know, Marvel and DC have both tried to revive them unsuccessfully many times over the years. You would think that they would learn from past mistakes and, and well, not so much give up, but I mean, if they're going to do it, do it right. You know, come out of the, come right out of the gate, you know, running. And they don't. I mean, this is another one of those that it just, I read this and my, 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 Biggest impression walking away from this is, well, this is a book that won't be around in, you know, a year or less, you know, it, it it's just, it, it feels like a million other books of the same thing that you can pick up in 50 cent bins across the country, you know, like, uh, you know, like your old Marvel Comics Presents and stuff like that, that, you know, there may be particular issues out there, you know, like the Weapon X storyline or something like that. But for the most part, that stuff is back issue bin fodder. Nobody wants it because, you know, they're they're anthology stories. They're typically done by writers and artists that nobody knows. And, you know, they're a lot of times they're stock stories or whatever. That's just what this feels like. It, it, it didn't it didn't add anything, you know, and it, it just, I don't know, it's kind of a waste of my time and money, I thought. But It's definitely not encouraging you uh, to spend three ninety nine on a book. Oh, either. hell no. Hell no. I feel sorry for anybody that bought this off the rack full price. I mean, they, they really should return it for, for a full refund. It's definitely not worth it. I mean, if I feel ripped off for a dollar, then I can just imagine that yeah. you know, some schlub that paid four bucks for it is really going to be steamed because – it really was not a good book. I mean, the only really good thing to it was it does have a nice cover on it, but beyond that, nah, not a good book. So, astonishing tales. No, it gets a it gets a thumbs down in my in my book. And that's pretty much it for uh, you know a couple of uh, spotlights. And I'll try to do this, you know, from time to time. Just uh, spotlight some. Uh, I'll call them Scott's random comics review, and I'll just. Spotlight some stuff either I've read or maybe I'll just pick something at random out of my collection just to review just for fun or whatever. Just you never know what it's going to be. It's just going to be something random. And with that, we'll take a quick break and come back with Saga of the Swamp Thing number one. And there came a day, a day unlike any other when Earth's mightiest heroes and heroines found themselves united against a common threat. On that day, the Avengers were born. 
to fight the foes no single superhero could withstand. Through the years, their roster has prospered, changing many times, but their glory has never been denied. Heed the call then, for now, the Avengers Assemble! The Avengers Assemble podcast, available now at avengersassemblepodcast.libsyn.com. The Saga of the Swamp Thing. All right, we're back, and uh, we're covering um, DC Comics Saga the Swamp Thing. But the but first of all, let's uh, get a little history in. Scott's prepared a little bit of a history lesson on... Uh, What's come before this run of uh, comics that we're about to uh, go over? So Swamp Thing, he was created in 1972 by writer Len Wein and artist, legendary horror artist, uh, Bernie Wrightson. He was created as kind of a a one-shot throwaway character in the old uh, House of Secrets book, uh, issue number 92. And proved so popular that basically he got his own title. DC, you know, wanted those guys to bring him back and and create uh, a title for him. So uh, a short while later, Swamp Thing number one debuted. Now, Len Wein, uh, fans will remember, uh, is also the creator several years later of a little character you may have heard of over in the Marvel Comics universe by the name of Wolverine. So anyway... uh, Len Wein and Bernie Wrightson uh, produced the first 10 legendary issues of the original Swamp Thing uh, comic, and uh, just great stuff. It's been reprinted all over the place. If you haven't read it, it's definitely worth your time to check it out uh, and seek it out. Lots of reprints out there, so you know, no excuse to, to not track that stuff down, particularly the, uh, the issue where Swamp Thing comes to Gotham City and uh, comes up against Batman. That's great. I think that maybe have been uh, my first exposure to Swamp Thing. Anyway, after uh, the first 10 issues, then uh, we had a couple of different writers. Uh, David Michelini came along, uh, Jerry Conway. But the artist after uh, Wrightson was the same guy all along, which was uh, Redondo. And he stuck with it all the way until the uh, next to last issue. The very last issue was by, um, I think it was Ernie Chow did that, that very last issue. And what's strange is towards the end of the series... Um, Swamp Thing was actually, quote-unquote, cured and restored to humanity, which was a story that caused a little bit of controversy, as we'll get to later on. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss things uh, in the saga, the Swamp Thing book, as we review it. In the letters pages, it was pretty much announced that they were going to ignore certain bits of continuity, and it caused a little bit of... Uh, you know, controversy with the fan community that, you know, that they were going to just kind of whitewash certain aspects of established continuity. So as we get to those, you know, Chris and I will, will point those things out. Anyway, of note, beyond the original series, you know, bridging the gap basically between the end of the original Swamp Thing and this first number one issue, Swamp Thing had a couple of other uh, appearances of note. Um, he appeared in Brave and the Bold, which was a Batman team-up book, 
um, number 122. Now, this was actually at the same time that Swamp Thing, the original Swamp Thing series, was still running. This uh, takes place in continuity basically between issues 18 and 19, written by Bob Haney uh, with art by uh, Jim Aparo and a beautiful Mike Kaluta cover on that. Um, Mike Kaluta, you may remember, was the uh, was probably most famous for uh, the Shadow series that he did for, uh, for DC. And then... Uh, Probably my favorite thing with Swamp Thing during this time was uh, he appeared between issues 81 and 87 of Challengers of the Unknown. And I really like this because not only did you get Swamp Thing, you know, interacting with the Challengers team and all that, but also Dead Man, who's one of my absolute favorite characters. He was in there, too. So it was a really strange bit of, you know, team up. You know, you had the Challengers and Swamp Thing and Dead Man and all this weird you know, fantasy horror wackiness going on. And it was just a lot of fun. Um, that was all written by Jerry Conway. And uh, the main artists on that were uh, uh, Mike Nasser and uh, Keith Giffen, some really nice uh, Rick, uh, Rich Buckler covers on all that stuff. Swamp Thing also teamed up with Superman in DC Comics Presents number eight by Steve Englehart and Murphy Anderson. And later on, we'll, we'll get to it much, much later, but uh, there was also a, uh, a legendary team-up between Superman and Swamp Thing many years later by Alan Moore, also in DC Comics Presents. So we'll cover that when we get to it. That's also just a, a, a great, great story. And uh, also Brave and the Bold, again, number 176 by uh, Marty Pascal, who is actually the author of this issue we're about to review of Saga the Swamp Thing. And are again by uh, by Jim Aparo, and that pretty much bridges the gap between the two, and then uh, largely due to reader demand and fan demand, but also the fact that there was a movie coming out. You know that that Wes Craven, the the famous horror director, you know he did the uh, what was it, Chris, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Sure, Is that did, what he, he was? He did a bunch of movies, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um. um Oh, what is the one with the the, the hills have eyes? Mm-hmm. And uh, but I mean up up to the point where this movie came out, he was probably most known for for Nightmare, right? The Nightmare on Elm Street oh, yeah. movies. Yeah, that's big claim. far far and away has been that and um, Scream have been mm-hmm. his biggest biggest uh, hits that he's done. But he's been around for a long time and done a lot of good movies. I mean, you you look at the cover of Saga, the Swamp Thing number one, and it you know it proclaims you know, because you demanded it, which I'm sure is true to a point. You know that fans loved the character of Swamp Thing; he was a fan favorite right from the get go. But I think a lot of the reason for the the second series, a lot of what basically gave it the green light and kicked it off, was the fact that this Wes Craven right. movie was coming out, and and you know they wanted that that cross promotion and all that. So that leads us into. Uh, to this first issue the issue itself Alright, I'll take it from here <laughs> um, this, uh, The first issue starts out kind of strangely With a double flashback We see the Swamp Thing Emerging from the water of the swamp From obviously a bad nightmare A recollection of his uh, his dead wife Which leads to the first flashback Which is, of course, his uh, origin story Where uh, as Alec Holland and his wife They were working on a formula A super growth formula for plants that would wipe out world hunger and you know completely save humanity etc etc and uh he's visited by you know some 
quote-unquote representatives of some big business or somebody who's trying to buy his formula, which, of course, is not for sale. And uh, so instead of uh, buying out his formula, they knock him out, and um, he wakes up and can see a bunch of dynamite under a table that's holding his his test tubes. And uh, when the dynamite blows up, he's, of course, infused with all the, the chemicals in his lab, one of which being the growth serum his wife bio-restorative is... formula exactly I think is what they, they called it yeah yep and his his wife is killed in the blast and he he runs out on fire into the swamp leaps into the water and between the bio-restorative formula and the swamp his body is rebuilt as you know the green gigantic swamp thing creature and uh so you know he's 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 remembering that painful past when he runs across a group of hunters who are just outside of Limbo, North Carolina, and so they're your typical redneck hunters out drinking and drinking and hunting and uh, smoking and hanging out, and uh, bears coming up behind them, and they don't see him see the bear, so the Swamp Thing figures he'll intervene and, and help him out, so he knocks a tree down between the bear and them scares off the bear. Well, the hunters see this guy, and of course they're drunken redneck hunters, and they decide to attack. One of them blows a hole in him with a shotgun, which, of course, as we know, doesn't really stop the swamp thing. So he's knocking him around, and in the battle, one of the guys pulls out his buoy knife and, and lops off his hand. So he sort of, he gives the guys a good scare and uh, limps off, you know, to towards Limbo, Limbo, North Carolina. So after this, he sort of s- snaps out of it. That's the second flashback. And he's just walking down the road. It's a couple days later, and, and he hears a gunshot. And it's down by sort of a pier down by the water. So he's heading that way. Meanwhile, back in town, we have this strange um, strange guy named Mr. K, and he's... Uh, and uh, K-A-Y, not as in the letter K, which I'll, I'll explain why that's important in a second. But he's trying, he's, you know, signing into the local hotel, and he's obviously a sort of a city guy or out of place there, and uh, he places a call to the mysterious Mr. G, who is just an initial. And um, it's it turns out that he's obviously tracking down Swamp Thing. He's he's telling Mr. G he's here in the area you know he's been sighted so I'm close so now we get back to to Alec Holland or the Swamp Thing and there's a car sort of abandoned by this pier and as he goes down there's there's a guy holding a gun up to his, a little girl's head she appears maybe to be like six years old little pigtailed blonde girl and uh, it becomes obvious as he's talking that he's uh, her father and that he's just shot her mother. And he's obviously kind of crazy and has a sort of religious bent because he's sort of making um, references to her mother being sort of a witch and, you know, that he had to, you know, had to kill the mother and he hates to do it. But if he if um, the girl turns out to be what he's pretty sure that she is, you know, it's better off that she's dead. And uh, the Swamp Thing, of course, intervenes in this, grabs a guy and gets between him and the girl and in the struggle the gun goes off and the guy's killed 
Well, the little girl's been sort of standing impassively with a blank look on her face through all this, and and um, you know he's he can the swamp thing can speak sort of haltingly, and he's trying to ask her, her name and how old she is, and she's just staring at him. But um, he figures, well, maybe she can't talk or she's traumatized or anything, so he takes her hand. And he says, "All right, come with me." So now, back. now let me interrupt you for one second. Are those panels of him smiling and trying to be nice and ask her questions not the creepiest looking thing yeah. you've ever seen? I mean, he's he's like trying to so sweetheart, you know. Let me let me help you. You know, where do you live? You know that kind of th- you know, like like you would do with a small child. That's very believable, but it's just this look of the <laughs> smiling creepy swamp thing. It's yeah, just, it is. It's very off putting. It's off putting, but uh, you can't even tell. You know, most kids would be running away screaming, but she just stands there. She just calmly takes his hand and walks off with him too, as the you know leaving the bodies of her mom and dad laying underneath the pier. So back we're back in in town, and Harry Kay's trying to buy his fancy European cigarettes, and they won't sell them to him at Heaver's General Store. And um, we get a look at the the locals who were involved earlier with the Swamp Thing, and they're talking loudly about, um, you know, the 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 that you know uh, that Swamp Thing is true. It says it in this book, you know, Swamp Thing, man or myth, Liz Tremaine. And uh, so, meanwhile, Swamp Thing's coming into town with the kid, and he's like, "Well, I'm going to drop her off at the at the sheriff's office." But at the same time, he's already calling her Casey, and he's like, "I don't know why I know that's your name, but he does." He he's already starting to figure this kid has a sort of psychic skill where she's communicating to him. They have some sort of connection because he knows her name, and they seem seem to uh, get along with each other. So. Uh, while he's while he's walking her over to the sheriff's, all of a sudden he's caught in the glare of headlights of a car, and uh, everybody in town hears the car coming. It's that Henderson kid with his hot rod, blasting through town. So uh, he runs up on the swamp thing, and uh, sort of can't stop the car car enough. So the swamp thing does the classic superhero stand in the middle of the road and stop the car before it hits the little girl. And, uh, of course, the Henderson kid goes flying out the window, hits the statue in the center of town, and is instantly looks like he's killed. You know, he's just thrown again, you know, thrown out of the car. And all the guys, all the villagers see that from the, the local bar. And uh, in a classic Frankenstein-like scene, they take grab brooms and get flaming torches and every weapon they can and heading out to uh, go get the swamp thing. Meanwhile, Harry Kay's calling up the uh, um, mysterious Mr. G um, and telling him he's right here. He's right outside. Um, and Mr. G says, well, get him. Make sure they don't. no harm comes to him. We want him alive. You know, the, it's classic, classic. And uh, then we find out that Harry Kay has um, the Swamp Thing's hand that had gotten cut off, and he's been testing it, and he tells Mr. G that he's been testing the hand and Alec Holland's dying. And, and that leads into the next issue, The Man Called Grasp. So you got to figure the mysterious Mr. G is uh, got to be the man called Grasp, especially since he's in shadows except for his one hand, which is grasping like a shot glass or something. So that sort of gives that away. And then um, 
So that's the end of the Swamp Thing story. Then there's a backup Phantom Stranger story that's sort of a morality play about a a preacher who uses who uh, converts an old woman from voodoo to Christianity, and uh, she's devoted to this guy and helps him deliver his packages. Well, it turns out he's a complete con man, and his packages are he are heroin, and he's making heroin deals using this old lady as a mule. She finds out and goes back to voodoo and of course, exacts her revenge in an ironic way to this preacher, turning a, a, a box, what he what he thinks is a box of cash, when he opens it up, it's full of cockroaches, which scares him so much he falls down a flight of stairs to his death. And it's also revealed that it was actually money and not cockroaches. It was all in his mind all the time. But that's that's issue number one. Yeah, I liked the little backup tale. Um, now, this the, that backup tale was written by Bruce Jones, who I'm wondering if that's the same Bruce Jones that would famously go on to have that uh, that you know that really popular uh, Hulk run a couple years back. I don't know if it's the same guy or not, but uh, the artist on most of the the Phantom Stranger backups in this was Dan Spiegel, and I, I have to admit I was never ever a fan of his of his art. I mean, it's passable and it works, but it really know, just... reminds me of the Charlton comics, sort of. Yeah, it does. Well, it reminds me a lot of Alex Toth, and I, I know it's somewhat sacrilegious to not be a Toth fan, but I never did like Alex Toth. I, I don't know what it is. I never quite got the popularity of of that artist. Uh, I know that he had a huge following and all that, but was never never that big on him. But I like that story because it had just the classic, like an EC comics you know, like tales of the crypt type of ending to it. I really like that, you know, with the roaches and the guy falls down the stairs and, and, and it was, and it's kind of an acknowledgement of how the swamp thing started out as a backup comic, sort of Mm -hmm. a backup story. So now the swamp thing's got his own backup story and Phantom Stranger's a neat character too. So, Oh yeah. So it was, it was good to have him, even if he is just sort of bookends on, uh, uh, you know, he gets to interact a little bit with all the characters in the story, but he's sort of a Rod Serling, basically, in, in that a sort of narrator and uh, commentator. But um, now the art in the Swamp Thing is definitely reminiscent of um, Bernie Wrightson. Very much not, so. While not aping him, but it has that... Um, Although there's some there, there's there's a, uh, a particularly on page four, the the shot of Alec Holland reaching for the the dynamite under the table, just before he gets blown yes. up. The way his face is shadowed, is completely Bernie Wrightson, and the way his hair is drawn, mm-hmm. that's that's a completely Bernie Wrightson. And the folds, even the folds in the cloth of his of his sleeves of his shirt, is very Bernie Wrightson looking. I think that entire flashback sequence is is very much, you know. I think, like you say, I, I think everything else with the with the art in this is the artist's own style. But you take that flashback sequence, and I think he was purposely paying tribute or, or paying homage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To to Wrightson because it really does feel like it could almost have been pulled right out of those. Those you know the the early you know the first issue of the original series with the whole origin story and all that. So what did uh, what did you think of this first issue? 
I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed these when they first came out, and then I remember these earlier issues, and we'll see if it happens again. It's been many years since I've read through these. Me too. Um, we'll see if it happens again. But once Alan Moore took over, it took such a... Um, and maybe it was because this that was my first real um, experience with Alan Moore. But, um, you know, my brain exploded on uh, from there. That's when, you know, there was an added layer of depth to the stories that wasn't there before. So a lot of these earlier issues I looked at as almost kind of the inferior part of the run, you know, to to when it got good. But now that I'm reading it, you know, now that I'm reading this again, now it doesn't it definitely doesn't have the depth of uh um of of the Alan Moore stories but it's got its own sort of thing going you know it's um they they were going for a different thing an almost more of a monster of the week yes. type of thing where there was an it, it was almost a forerunner of i would have to say the X-Files in in that sort of format where there was an ongoing because I gotta say I've cheated. I've I, I when when um, we first decided we were gonna do this, which was actually back a while ago. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that we were gonna be reading like or we were gonna be covering. I didn't know if we were gonna be doing one issue at a time or three or four at a time. So I read the first three or four or five issues, and right. uh, and uh, yeah, it sort of runs like the X Files where there's a different sort of thing, main thing happening each issue. But there's a running storyline behind it all too. There's a continuing, you know, more more deeper storyline. And as it, you know, as they were traveling across the country, they would come across different monsters or different problems in each place. But the same that you know, the big plot line was also unfolding along with a series of smaller ones. And it was kind of an interesting formula. But by the time Alan Moore came in, you know, he busted that formula up. And turned it well, into it, its own thing. As far as the monster of the week goes, or, or I guess because this was a periodical, you'd call it more like monster of the month. Yeah. But uh, that was pretty much, to my recollection, that was pretty much the formula of the original right. book. This this has a leg up on that only in the sense that, you know, it followed that same formula. But now it had the '80s sensibility of the continuing storyline, right. you know, the, the the continuing thread. Whereas now, maybe I'm just misremembering because it's been a long, long time since I've read the original 24 issues of the original Swamp Thing. But I don't remember there being much of a continuing story. I mean, beyond the first issue or two that told the origin and created him as the Swamp Thing. Beyond that. He became a very Frankensteinian wander from adventure to venture, right. uh, adventure type of character where there, he, he didn't really have, quote unquote, a purpose in life. He just kind of, you know, now he was this misshapen monstrosity and he just kind of wandered to, to different things. Yeah, he was Whereas kind in, of an existential moper, actually, you know, just yeah. sort of like, oh, cruel fate, where am I? I, I hate I hate life. And then. Something would happen, and he would still, you know, and then the bitter irony was he would still, you know, defend human beings or still, you know. And that's kind of where this issue starts that way, basically falls back into the same formula, but then he he hooks up with Casey. 
and that not only gives him kind of a newfound purpose in life caring for this child and everything but then we also have you know behind the scenes you know so far unbeknownst to him this whole thing with uh with mr k and all of that so so i like that that it 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 was using the same formula that i thought worked just fine in the old book but now there were it it was going to all be connected to a to a bigger storyline rather than just you know the wandering the wandering monstrosity because those type of things are fun for a while but there's been so many different books of that sort and i can think of like you know marvel's frankenstein book and uh uh the mummy the living mummy back in supernatural thrillers and even dracula to a certain degree as as great as as tomb of dracula was you know that was almost the same kind of thing you know he just kind of wandered from you know threat to threat or adventure to adventure rather than there being like a continuing storyline and like a like a driven purpose to the book you know i I think back in in those days with comics too i think they thought i think i think they thought the majority of comics were almost sold in a random fashion rather than Mm -hmm. a month by month you know basis and since and also availability wasn't the same as it is today so right. you couldn't weren't guaranteed of finding your you know the the your the local um drugstore guy may not order swamp thing that month he might just go through and tick through a whole bunch of different comics you know right. each month so i think a lot of in the old days a lot of those comics were stand always had standalone stories in them so right. that you just couldn't go wrong you know this this is still in that era because i, I yeah. went back to look at the day i think we forgot to mention the date this was 1982 and god does that make me feel old thinking how this is but yeah this was still in that in that era where you know it was exactly like you say because i can remember missing issues you know because you'd, you'd go back to the same you know newsstand or magazine seller and they might not have you know your book because that's why i'm missing particular issues out of my run because i literally bought these you know off the rack but i think books like this you know that that started to do the continuing story or, or, or were really trying to do it i think they contributed to you know that that modern what we think of as modern comics in the sense yes. of you know a storyline that can run for issues and issues and issues and you know even now they've started you know they pretty much have abandoned the old you know cliched you know two page recap of what happened last yeah. issue kind of thing you know or because, having or making sure that the um that the hero at some point you know what made sure to to use a little exposition and explain all that happened too you know in the right. just in the course of conversation mind you but right but I think yeah, this comic was way kind of ahead of its time, because a, a for its you know eventual use of Alan Moore you know being in in America especially, and uh, and B for the the continuing storyline. And I think until Alan Moore was in this comic, I think this comic was kind of a sleeper, and it probably was a sleeper through the beginning of Alan Moore too. And uh, it was also very interesting to see how Alan Moore took a lot of what happened in these earlier issues and picked out what he needed to do with what he was going to do and using it, you know, there's, because there's elements that are happening in, in these, in these Pasco stories that, um, 
that play out in the in the Alan Moore. He didn't scrap everything, you know. He sort of he still sort of played it with what he had, you know, played it off what he had, and and still took it in a different direction. My but, uh, understanding of all of that is that it it plays pretty much like my own personal history with with this particular title, which was I was thrilled to see it come back, and I was sticking with it pretty pretty faithfully. And then it seemed like the story was going in places I just didn't personally care about very much. And I kind of lost interest and quit just probably two or three issues prior to when Moore actually took over. Uh-huh. And, and my understanding is that that's that Moore's taking over the book was pretty much because of the, you know, that, that, my experience was, was parallel. General sentiment. Yeah. You yeah. know, that, People were thrilled that it came back. They they loved it in the beginning, and then somewhere right around the first year or so, people started to become you know kind of disenchanted with it. Yeah. And by the time well, it was in came, the Swiss Alps and with golems yeah. and and by the Nazis time more and... came along, you know the book was was going to be canceled anyway. So he was brought in. You know, which that's that's become such a such a famous story in comics. There's so many comics where, you know, they were, they were just about to be let go. And then somebody was brought in and kind of, you know, I mean, Frank Miller's story on daredevil was kind of the same thing. You know, daredevil was headed down the crapper. They were going to, you know, cancel that. And they brought in Frank Miller and just let him do whatever the hell he wanted right. to. Cause they figured well, he what can't he do any worse. Lose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the same thing with swamp thing, you know, swamp thing, you know, was headed for cancellation. Alan Moore came along. He was pretty much let do whatever he wanted to do. And, you know, look at what a legendary run that became. But, uh, what I was curious about is, uh, uh, your personal history with, with Swamp Thing. I'm curious, how did you, uh, get on board with this? I got on board with this when issue number one of this came out and you were like, Oh my God, that, you know, they're printing another Swamp Thing comic. And I bought it. I remember we both bought an issue of it, the, this first issue, and I read it, and I was like, "Hey, this is pretty good." And you had a bunch of the original ones, mm-hmm. and and you know we'd go over to your house and read the original ones, and that's what hooked me. Those original, you know, reading those original ones was just like, "Wow!" It, I may have even read those at some point, um, you know, before this came out, but it probably wasn't very long before this came out. Because I remember I'd be over at your house and you would just pull stuff off your shelf and be like, oh, you've never read, you know, Dead Man. You've never read this before. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you, you would just feed me issues, you know. Here's right. a first appearance or whatever. So so it was, it was very likely that it was either it was either you showing me those original Swamp Things over at your house or, or this actual issue. Because... Um, you know, this was, of course, before the movie came out. And by the time the movie came out, we didn't even get a chance, I don't think, to see it in the theaters, right? Did we get to see it in the theaters? I think it was I at saw the it, drive-in. I saw it at the Black River Drive-In, yeah. And, That's uh, when I first... But I think most... I I think, like, we saw a lot on HBO. It was on HBO a lot, I seem to remember. And, I think that's gave it its sort of half-assed cult status because for, for a while it was something of a of a cult classic i don't know if it still i don't know if people even remember the movie today but for a while yeah. it did have sort of a mini cult uh status and i think that's why is because hbo did run the crap out of it when it when it first hit yeah. hbo it became a, a very popular one on hbo 
Well, what's funny is is you know I th- you know the comic was kind of a sleeper. I think I think the movie was kind of a sleeper. I don't think it was a, is anything that took the world by storm. You know, and then the second movie came out, and you know what's funny about the second movie is I remember Siskel and Ebert giving it a good review. Oh no way! Yeah, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Yes, no, they gave it a good review. They were like, you know, this is silly, and and the the monster, you know, and they were laughing at. at there was one scene where you know um, Swamp Thing's and 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 Swamp Thing had a more rubbery suit in this one, and he was fighting another monster in an obvious rubber suit, and he punches a thing in the face. And and it had a sort of long, you know, wolfy sort of face. And when he punched it, you could see the, like, rubber going, boing, on, you know, it was bad. And, you know, cuts back to Siskel and Ebert. They're laughing their asses off, you know. this. Did you see, did you see that? He punched you know, these rubber. This is great fun, you know. This is great campy fun. And uh, I remember being like, all right, you know, okay, I can understand that, you know. Okay, good campy fun. You know, when I think good campy th- fun i think like evil dead you know something like right. that okay maybe it's you know where they're aware of it and then i was watching it i'm like this is just cheap <laughs> this it is just terrible. cheap and cheesy and uh yeah, whereas really the first terrible. one was cheap and cheesy too but it was made by you know Wes craven isn't you know he's no alfred hitchcock but he's still a very you know he puts a way more thought into it than most horror directors and he's a very 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 flexible director and everybody thinks of him as his horror director but he really is a very he does very different shades of horror every time and this well, one we need really... to we need to devote an episode or at least part of an episode just to a review of of this movie of the movie yeah i, I think i think that's worth doing because i it's i i have it somewhere and it's been a long time since i've rewatched it i recently I think downloaded it, it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why I got it too. I think it's I think it's worth uh, worth watching again and giving a review. What do you think? Ah, I know there's definitely one scene worth watching again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for anybody who hasn't seen it, there is a uh, there's a really uh, nice boob shot in the movie. So it's yeah, very, it's, it's, it's worth. It. I I actually rewatched it when I downloaded it, and I was like, okay, I got that's right, Adrian Barbeau, and I was so happy because John Carpenter had married Adrian Barbeau, and he was a local boy, and I was very proud of the local boy. Oh, I didn't know he married her. Oh, I always yeah. wondered why she did so many of his movies. Uh, yeah. And uh, a little nepotism there, and uh-huh. uh, um, I remember since, and this was, I don't know if it's the same rules nowadays, but. Back then, HBO wouldn't show anything before 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock that was rated R. But they would show PG. And Swamp Thing was rated PG. Swamp Thing had a good, nice, long shot of a topless Adrian Barbeau, like, <laughs> walking into the swamp and walk and jiggling on out of the swamp water and, and taking a nice little pastoral dip in the, in the, in the slimy pool. And, uh... And I remember, you know, you could, you know, that's you could tune in and see that at noon on HBO, which was very important to to, uh, to, to yeah to adolescent adolescent kids. You know, same same thing with Barbarella. Barbarella was a movie packed full of nudity, rated PG, HBO all the time. It was full, <laughs> your full service Barbarella. 
I'm trying to remember. I was really trying to remember my personal history with Swamp Thing, and and I cannot remember. I'm thinking. I, I'm pretty sure that I, it wasn't original issues, but I'm thinking my first exposure to him was either in the the story where where he went to Gotham City or the Brave and, and the Bold. met up with Batman. What's that? Or that brave? Was it a Brave and a Bold? You said he was. Oh in? no, no, it was no, it was an issue of Swamp Thing. It was like Swamp Thing. I think it's like number seven or something like that. But it was reprinted somewhere, and I think that's where I I may have. It was it was either that story or it was the story with the unmen, which I always found really really yes. creepy. They were the the dudes. It'd be like one dude was nothing but a head, and then like his hands were right underneath his chin, so he like walked on his fingers. And then there was another guy with like super long arms. I mean, just these really bizarre looking, freaky looking things. You yeah, know, they were out of like a Hieronymus Bosch painting of hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, being drawn by rights and just made them that much more, you know, creepy, slimy, icky kind of characters, you know. So it was one of the two of those was my first experience, you know, exposure to him and and uh, I don't know what it was. I just I thought it was a cool character and and so then I tried to get as many as I could. And I remember the next door neighbors, they had a son that I don't think I've I ever met. That by the time we moved there, you know, he was off to, I don't know, college or real life or whatever. And he'd left behind a whole bunch of comics. And I was always trying to get these, get them to like give them to me or sell them, excuse me, sell them to me because he had a whole bunch of swamp things. And I never did get them from him, but I ended up, you know, because I, I got to read them over at their house or whatever, you know, it just reaffirmed my wanting them so bad, you know. So then I had to track them down, you know, through any means necessary and, you know that that's one of my my prides and joy in my collection is my all my old swamp things. I still don't have all. I'm lacking like three issues of the orig, original 24, but I, you know I have them all you know reprinted or whatever. And man, that's that's just some great stuff, especially uh, the the first ten issues by uh, by Ween and Wrights and just you know it's it's weird, it's unusual. The art is you know that that beautiful horror, and it, it's just it's it's just some great stuff. And I think. At least in the early issues of of this book, you know the the early pre more issues they they were kind of going for the same thing. I, I think, you know, as well as we'll see as we read along, I, I think it started to kind of lose its its pace or whatever. Yeah. But uh, you know, in the first few issues anyway, I I, th- I think they were nailing a, the the feel of the of the old original. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's a while in the future. There's some good. There's some good strong meaty horror coming up here in the next few issues and some mm-hmm. and some very adult and very controversial topics too coming up too so oh, yeah. that they hit in these which is also ahead of its time but i think we're ready for a break excellent and uh we'll be back with our coverage of the walking dead hi folks it's your old pal chris honeywell here As per condition of my parole, I am making the following public service announcement. Hello, parents! When you bring your children to a movie theater, please keep them in their seats, and more importantly, see if you can't get them to SHUT THE FUCK UP! If you can't, don't be surprised if a random stranger tackles and muzzles them. While this is illegal, it surprisingly only ends up being parole and community service, especially if you have a clean record. Thanks. This is Chris saying, 
I'm just glad I could help. Now back to Two True Freaks. The Walking Dead. Okay, we're back. And now it is time for the Walking Dead segment of the show. This is Walking Dead number five, with uh, which features a beautiful uh, cover by Moore of basically uh, the gang we've become familiar with, uh, Rick and his wife and little boy and Shane and just the other survivors uh, in a like a snowy snowfall, like... Uh, snowstorm type of type of setting surrounded by just like hordes of zombies it's just it's just a great cover just it's a totally surrounded beautiful by the, color in it the, yeah. the the way color is used i mean it's really portrays a a dark snowy night mm-hmm. yeah it's covers like this that that in a way make me kind of sad that that we never really get the Walking Dead in color, you know. I mean, I'm I'm glad it's a, a black and white book most of the time, but then you see images like if it this, looked like, like this, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What what could the book look like in color? You know, how awesome could it be? But most of the time, you know, especially with with some of the gorier sequences, I'm quite You're happy. Glad, yeah. Right. We start off with a uh, a really creepy shot once again that looks like it could be like right down the street from my house this this looks like a stretch of i20 not far from where i live of a corpse dead you know smashed through the windshield of of its car and uh, a a buzzard like picking at the corpse and then it's scared away by gunshots we cut to a field so Rick and Shane are teaching the survivors um, how to fire weapons, basically, learning how to defend themselves, how to target shoot, that sort of thing, so that they'll be better prepared in future should anything arise where they'll need to know how to fire uh, guns. And, you know, Rick's just kind of walking the line, encouraging everyone, and then he calls to his son Carl and tells him that, you know, he's ready for him to come out, that he can learn how to shoot. Lori gives Rick, you know, very disapproving look. She really is not happy that Rick is going to teach, you know, this small boy. What is Carl supposed to be like? He's like seven, eight years old, something like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe uh, seven or eight at the oldest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to teach him how to how to shoot a gun. But you know, Rick takes him out there, lets him shoot, and tells him that you know if he can be responsible and everything, that you know he gets to carry a gun like everybody else. And uh, you know, Rick, you know, gives everybody a pep talk, tells them that, you know, they're, he's very impressed with, uh, you know, the, the way that everything's gone and that they're going to head back to the camp now. He and uh, and Lori have a little tiff because she's really pissed. Oh, okay, here it is. She says that he's seven years old. So, yeah, he's just a little kid. She's really not happy with him learning how to how to shoot and everything. But Rick says, you know, it's, it's for his safety and basically for the safety of the group. Anyway, the old guy... You know, says that he just wishes that the, the, the place where they were shooting was not so far away from their camp. But, you know, Rick points out that, you know, that they didn't want the gunshots to attract the zombies to where they were. Uh, so they head back to camp and Alan's keeping lookout, you know, at, at the camp, uh, protecting it for everybody. He welcomes them back, asks how the target practice went and all that. And his wife, Donna, notices the old guy head into his camper with both those young girls. And she's very uh, disapproving about the whole thing. 
but uh, Rick's wife kind of rebukes her about being judgmental and everything. The guys in the meantime, uh, Rick, Shane, and the old guy with the camper, they head off into the woods to chop some woods, uh, chop some wood for the camp and everything. And uh, you know, Rick and the old guy are talking about you know how they should move, and Rick just doesn't feel safe where they are and all this, and it. Finally, uh, Shane just kind of snaps. He's really pissed about the fact that, you know, Rick keeps on about moving the camp. Uh, Shane is determined to stay where they are. He feels like, you know, any day now that they're going to be rescued or that, you know, the the army or some government organization is going to come through looking for survivors and that they're really better off where they are. But the fact that he blew up at Rick the way he did, really, you can see it on Rick and the old guy's face that, you know, they're starting to get a little worried about Shane, you know, that maybe yeah. he's starting to, to lose it a little bit. And we saw some indications of that in the last issue, too. You know, maybe they didn't notice, but we noticed as the reader that, you know, Shane's, you know, he, his mind is starting to go certain places and that, you know, there was a little bit of foreboding. So anyway, we get one of my favorite sequences, which, you know, they they did the this, this same sort of thing in the remake of Dawn of the Dead a couple of years ago, you know, where the survivors just kind of sit around and they talk about who they were before the end of the world. And I, I like that. I like that that, se- that sequence in this, and I liked it in that movie. And I don't know what it is about those kind of those kind of scenes that just I don't know they really work for me. I guess it's just because they're very human scenes, and you, you kind of get a peek at these people you know, who they were in their, in their regular lives before everything just totally went to shit. So they just kind of round robin the group and everybody tells, you know, where they came from and what they were doing and everything. And my favorite one, I I know that, you know, you and I have both commented on it is, uh, you know, everybody else gets, you know, a lot of word balloons and a lot of exposition. They, they come Uh around to Jim and Jim just says mechanic (laughs) and it moves on to the next person. You know, that's all he ever says. And up to this point, he really has not ever said much of anything. And, uh, you know, they go around and and Rick tells about, you know, his own kind of origin story. It's almost like a recap. And uh, the the conversation kind of stalls out at one point. And one of the young girls that's been shacked up in the camper with the old man says up and says, well, I got to pee, you know, which elicits a, 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 you know, a, pretty uh what do you call it the hairy eyeball from, yeah <laughs> uh, donna yeah you know she she doesn't approve of them anyway and then you know this this young girl getting up announcing that she's gonna go pee just kind of pisses donna off so as she's headed into the camper you know she asks if anybody needs anything while she's up and suddenly she's bit viciously bit right in the throat by a zombie it's just really just awful it just kind of just tears her throat right open and everything and the group freaks there's just a great panel of the whole group just a whole a total like holy shit moment you know where the the whole group panics and very quickly uh rick and shane are on their feet blasting zombies it turns out that that they're surrounded that there's a whole group that nobody ever saw coming in the meantime, um, the girl Amy is uh, is laying there, basically just bleeding out. And Rick and her sister are trying to help her, but uh, very quickly she just basically drowns in her own blood, she, and she's dead. And Rick has to get back in on the action of defending the group. 
Um, Lori runs off with the kids trying to, you know, to make it to a car. And basically the, the armed members of the group are doing what they can to defend everyone else and, you know, defend the women and children, basically. And as Lori is taking the kids and running for one of the cars, suddenly they're surrounded and she goes for her gun and then fumbles it. She's just, I, I guess she's too nervous and too inexperienced and she's about to be attacked when her son, Carl, shoots the zombie for her, shoots it right in the face and kills it. They uh, they take out the rest of the uh, the zombies and, and defend everybody. And as they're they're cleaning up the last of them, one is coming for Jim, the the silent guy, the the mechanic. He shoots it, but he he only wings it in the shoulder. He doesn't kill it, and it tackles him to the ground and is trying to bite him. Suddenly, Jim goes completely ape shit. He takes his gun and instead of shooting it, he just holds it by by the barrel and beats the thing to death with with the butt of the gun, screaming the whole time, "My family, my family! You killed them!" And you know he's just maniacal. You can see it in his face how crazed he is. And uh, Rick comes to him and, and puts a hand on his shoulder and says, "You know, Jim, stop! It's over." And, and Jim kind of comes back to himself a little bit and uh, and just quietly says, it, "It killed my family." And then the group kind of recovers. You know, all the uh, all the zombies have have been put down at this point, and the old man comes to to comfort uh, Andrea. You know, on the death of her sister, and Andrea shoots her sister and says, "You know, I just couldn't let her come back like that." And uh, Lori is uh, being comforted by Rick. You know, the the horror of the situation and everything, and she happens to glance over and see Jim, and Jim has a giant chunk bitten out of him. You know, he was bit by the zombie that attacked him, and he said that, you know, he says, it's nothing, it's just a scratch. And that's pretty much where the issue ends. Well, this this one's jumping right into the into the zombie action. This, one, this is, like, probably the most full-out zombie action episode yet of this, of this comic. I would say. Yeah, I, I would yeah, I would I would say so too. I mean, this is even beyond, you know, when when Rick rode into Atlanta. Well, now and, we, now the characters are now we have a lot more characters that we actually are starting to get to know and care about. I mean, we actually go around in a circle and get to know them even better in, in this one. So, now there's more of a stake involved, you know, with uh with these zombies. So, this yeah, this it, one was the first real you know the group gets attacked issue yeah this one uh yeah like you see you become invested in the characters at this point you come to to care for them and all that and it's funny it's so weird the character that kirkman chooses you know to to get bit and you know that you really have that 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 strong like oh my god you know holy shit reaction to at the end is jim you know, I mean, a character that really has not said or, or done a heck of a lot in the whole course of the story, yet somehow he, he's really likable. You know, you really yeah. come to like the guy and you feel so bad in this last scene where, where he's suddenly been bit. I mean, at this point, you know, save for Rick or his wife or his little boy, I can't think of another character that if they had been bit at this point, I would feel 
as badly as I feel for him. It's just, it was a strange decision for, for Kirkman, but it, it just, it works so well. You know, that, that you, I, I think really a lot of it is, uh, is really, you know, kudos to the artist for drawing Jim as, you know, just looking so real and, and such a, uh, well, the way he reacts is, I think, more realistic than a lot of the other. You know, I think that, you know, he's he's the tough he's the tough quiet guy, but he's the tough guy quiet guy who's just seen his whole family killed, and he's, you know, he's he's gone. You know, he's just he's he's traumatized, and uh, that's why he's probably wasn't talking much. You know, and, right. Uh, and you know when you see that bite taken out of his arm, you, you know is and and you know anything about zombies, you know he's dead. He's just dead, and and, and he knows it too. Oh, he know everybody knows it. At that point, it, that then it becomes the first time. Now, now it becomes the first time beyond that they have a new problem to deal with, which isn't just how do we deal with the zombies? How do we deal with somebody? I mean, everybody potentially can become a zombie just by dying. But this guy is dead. You know, once you get that bite, you get sick and you die and you become a zombie pretty quickly. So now they've, you know, now there's a whole problem now that the whole group has to has to reach. And I guess logically as a storyteller, Jim is the logical guy to tell that story on. You know, he has, his family's gone. He has nothing to lose. He's probably given up. You know, he's one of the first. And as the story goes on, there's going to be less and less characters who give up hope because they're just not going to make it. And he's mm-hmm. like the only character there who's really, truly sort of, you can tell he's just sort of given up. He's just sort of, his life is gone. He's not sure, you know, you know, maybe something could um, have brought him back to, you know, living in the, in, in reality and, 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 no, he seemed very much live. He seemed very much to be going through the motions, you know. Right, right, right. But you know, he was depressed. It's a it's a sort of depression. Right. But you can come out of that, you know. There could have been an episode or an issue where, you know, something happened and he decided, Okay, I have to go on with my life. But, you know, once this bite happens, no, that's you know, there's no coming back for this character. This character is you know, where it's it's not where he's going, it's how it's going to play out that becomes the sort of mystery with this character, but yeah, it's <laughs> either way, it's not going to be good <laughs> for him. His, you know, and it's a it's a nice little bit of foreboding. And if you notice and if you notice this comic is so rich with details you know, between the writing and the art and the the synergy, but when he's standing there holding his his arm and the rest of the group's looking at him, and you notice Carl's just just um, you can't tell whether he's putting his gun away or maybe pulling his gun. <laughs> but oh, that's true. Carl's yeah, wonder, Carl's sort of wondering what he should. You know, Carl's thinking. You know, you can tell Carl's thinking, I might have to shoot this guy, <laughs> and. uh that's quite a thought for a, for a seven-year-old kid to be thinking. There's a lot of great shots of um, a couple page back, a couple pages back, just before Carl shoots the zombie, when um, you know when it's first coming towards his mother. Just the look of abject horror as he's hiding, you know, as he's behind his mother, you know, and she's trying to pull the gun and drops the gun. 
um, compared to the look on his face when, when, of like resolute, you know, I have to do this when he when he actually shoots it, is great. You know, he, he, he there's just so much going on in this in this issue more than you know zombies attacking. He's got so many layers of, um, you know, the whole the whole thing of uh, Donna disapproving with um, Dale Dale. That's his Dale. name. Dale. Yeah. There's just all sorts of great little shots of of her and the 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 look that she gives her when she goes I got to pee which you know she just is thinking that's an inappropriate you can tell just from that's an inappropriate thing for a young lady to say and it's right. also yep. and it's also in reference to her intimate details which she's her imagination is you know trying to trying to um grasp what's going on with this old guy and the two younger girls and not only that but the two younger girls are sisters so you know you know with her imagination and we find out later on um when uh, when dale's just like hey look i'm an old guy (laughs) you know i can't i can't you know whatever anybody's thinking i can't keep up with that i'm just an old guy that i just like having females around you know which is it's is very realistic. I, I just I, and I love how every, you know there's still still gossip. I think Rick even says something like, "Yeah, she doesn't have soap operas now, so she's got to have something to gossip about." <laughs> and uh, and uh, the scene the scene where everybody's shooting their guns. You know, you're starting to you know um, is it is it um, uh, Andrea? You know, Andrea's turning out to be kind of a sharpshooter. You know, she's she's sort of smoking everybody on the on the gun range. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I like how how Rick publicly tells everybody, you know, I'm giving my son a gun. If anybody sees him, do you know, even pretend he's going to pull it out, tell me, and he, it goes away forever. That seems like a very you know, fatherly thing that's a father would do, and especially a right. father who's a cop, you know, who's trained with guns and everything. That seems like such a, you know, just the perfect reaction to that. And uh, and and I and I like how this issue sort of solves the tension between Rick and his wife about their son carrying a gun. <laughs> now, who the hell was supposed to be on lookout? during the campfire scene is what I want to know. Cause that seems like that's what, where this all happens, you know, with the whole zombie attack is that no one's really looking out, you know, yeah. for, for them. That, that just seems right. Very because, careless. because they're surrounded all of a sudden, because what happens is she see the, the, the first girl, um, what is it? Amy that gets, uh, Amy. that gets attacked. She she sees a zombie at the you know she's going into the trailer she sees one at the end of the trailer, and she's freaking out of that one. She probably starts walking backwards, and that's when the other one comes up behind her and gets her in the neck. So they're coming from both side you know they're coming from all directions on both sides of the trailer and just surrounding them, and um, you know maybe and I and I tend to doubt this with two cops there, but um. You know, I mean, maybe they let their guard down and, you know, around the fire. Uh, now I'm looking at a picture and it looks like everybody is there. In the... Yeah, yeah, they are. 
They obviously yeah, are take because a look they have at that to picture and kind of taken stock, and yeah, everybody, and they're all there. Present, yeah. So, so that's that. That might be a little. Uh, that might be a little um, nitpick there, <laughs> but because I, I just seriously doubt. Maybe they're thinking since they're sitting around a fire, since everybody's sort of aimed it in a different direction, but you know, maybe maybe they just haven't been getting attacked at night so they thought maybe they were safe or they're letting their guard down and now that they've all been practicing with their guns and they have all the guns maybe they've been getting a little more confident it is in the early days of of the zombie apocalypse so you know they 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 still maybe don't understand the you know how quickly things can get out of control although some although they all should According to their stories, it sounds like they've all really experienced things going out of control. Right. So, but, you know, sometimes it just might be the natural human thing of, you know, maybe they were just feeling comfortable and human enough to sit around a campfire and talk and uh, actually lost track That's one of the things I wonder as as the series goes along and and things happen to different characters and, and, you know, they lose people in the group or whatever. I wonder if we'll ever get to a point where we will see the the characters that survive into the, the present issues become just totally whacked out, freaked out, paranoids that can't ever relax and have their guard down because it seems like every time... They start. Oh, that's that's guaranteed now. I mean, basically, that. I mean, once you've been existing in any kind of world like this, you know, it's basically like being. It would basically like be being on patrol in Iraq, you know, where you could get blown up by a a roadside bomb at any time, or the next, you know, somebody could ram your your Humvee with their with their car full of explosives at any second, you know. Or somebody could just take pot shots from you out of a window of a house, you know. You and and it's that it's they basically would have post-traumatic shock syndrome, you know, that or shell shock or whatever you want to call it. But I mean, I don't see how anybody in these comics could ever get away without being permanently traumatized and paranoid for life. <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of. Um, becoming the the one of the themes of the comic that that <laughs> being paranoid and and uh and traumatized might be the the thing that keeps you alive in this world so that's why it's such a horrifying world <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh yeah there's there's all yeah there's you know nobody can be it's nobody's the same that's that's why I've been trying to do a running theme of when I put a picture of this up on our on our Libsyn site. I've been trying to have each one feature a picture of Rick's face, <laughs> so we can watch Rick's face month by month as as he gets more and more traumatized and more and more you know as more and more <laughs> mileage gets put on his face and. Uh, this is the kind of comic that's written and drawn with that in mind, you know. You you see the car- you see and you not only see it in their actions, but you see it in the way they're drawn and the way they look and 
and even hold themselves as time goes on. You can see the trauma building up. And, right. you know, not not to mention the scars and <laughs> just physical physical problems that happen, you know, from as as we go on. That'll be made more and more clear what that means. <laughs> but, yeah. I definitely like this issue. I mean, it, it, it lends a lot to the to the ongoing mythos i mean we we come to find some things out later on you know uh, that you know that come from you know the 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 shooting scene and stuff like that yes uh, that that's what i like about it is it you know this was kind of a a world building issue yes there's there's stuff that happens that happens and is alluded to in this issue that that doesn't turn up to, or you know that that is affecting things that happened twenty issues down the line past here. Right. So that's right. Really, really cool. Really shows that Kirkman really has plotted this out. You know, I don't know how how specifically he's plotted out the story. You know, in into the future, but he's definitely really thought this out well, right. going into it and all the way through it, and it shows and other comic book writers should take note. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to curry well, favor with two true freaks, pay attention to what Kirkman's doing. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's all I've got for this particular issue. Yeah, what I have, think that uh, about wraps it up. I just want, I, one thing I wanted to mention is uh, that a, a friend of ours, um, Mike, who's been listening to the show pretty regularly, I just... Um, he was over at my house the other day, and I just passed him off the first twenty or so issues of of The Walking Dead. So there's there's a new there's a new one out there who's going to be eating this stuff up. So I'm pretty proud of that. <laughs> I just wanted to gloat about that a little bit. Anybody, I I you know I think we should gloat anytime we hear about anybody who's started started watching something that we're covering or started reading one of the comics. I think. Isn't that really well, I'll, what it's I'll, all about? I'll put it out there. I'll put it out there as this: that you know, anybody who who got into this book, you know, to keep, you know, to read along with us or whatever, or basically discovered it through us. We want to hear it. I, I'd like to do a show with with folks that you know are reading along with us. You know, reading this, you know, for the first time or discovered it, you know, because of us or whatever, and uh, and really, you know, bring you in to to discuss it. You know, have a have a full segment of, of just discussion. And know, another, what do you, what do you... Well, another thing I'm curious about is, are there people out there who are listening to these shows who aren't <laughs> reading The Walking Dead? You know? Oh, yeah. Is there anybody, you know, I mean, uh, I, that that would be very interesting to me, too, if, if you're just, if, if you listen to these and are, you know, are not reading the comics, if it's also, like, your way of following the story, or if it's just interesting, or what i'm just curious just curious that's all it's human (laughs) it's human to be curious (laughs) so basically write us (laughs) and uh we'll be back next month with uh the next issue of swamp thing next issue of walking dead and Oh, God knows what else we'll have. We'll, I'm God sure we'll only have knows. Something else. <laughs> we'll have some pi- picks and pans. There you go.
visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email us directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to the Two True Freaks podcast. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. But wait, there's more! Two True Freaks is very proud to present a sensational new group, direct from Boston and performing their new song, Cemetery Eyes, Here's Hatch. Check Hatch out at myspace.com slash one hatch band. That's myspace.com slash the number one H A T C H B A N D. That's myspace.com slash one hatch band. 
where you can learn more about the band, sample more of their great music, and even buy their new CD. And tell them Two True Freaks sent you.